The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. So it's official, Britain's getting poorer again. Last year's green shoots have been snuffed out over a frosty winter. Is it a mere blip, or is this the first step towards a much-feared double-dip recession? As the outgoing head of the CBI trounces the government's growth strategy, is Labour's new shadow chancellor, Ed Balls, now winning the argument on the economy? And on Oscar nomination day, it was a different King speech, see what we did there, that grabbed headlines as the Bank of England chief backed the Treasury and defended monetary policy. Monetary policy can't change the amount that we in the UK have to pay for food and other commodities such as energy from the rest of the world. Nor can it alter the need for a fall in the prices of the products that we sell to the rest of the world relative to world prices in order to reduce our trade deficit and rebalance the UK economy. Also this week, more than 2,000 members of the global elite, including Cameron, Clegg and George Osborne, are jetting off to the Swiss ski resort of Davos for the exclusive annual summit. Our very own Larry Elliott's name is on the list. We'll hear how politicians, captains of industry and other assorted bigwigs plan on spending the week. Plus, we'll hear from Raghuram Rajan, former chief economist at the IMF, now advisor to the Indian Prime Minister, on how the policymakers can get the world economy back on track. This week, George Osborne got some terrible news. The UK economy shrank in the last quarter of last year by 0.5%. That's way down on the 0.7% growth it had over autumn and way, way, way below the expectations of most city analysts. But he said there will be no change of policy. They're clearly disappointing figures. But the statisticians tell us that the weather had a huge effect. We had the coldest December for 100 years. Businesses were closed. People couldn't get to work. It's notable that some of the areas less affected by the weather, like manufacturing, have actually been performing quite strongly. And we're very clear that to change our budget plans on the back of these weak figures and the bad weather would be a huge mistake because that would push us back into a financial crisis. So we're not going to be blown off course by the bad weather. Still, that's a world away from his upbeat analysis of only three months ago. I think this underpins confidence in the economy. I think it is a vote of confidence in the government's economic policies. But as a new shadow chancellor, Ed Balls has been quick to point out, raising VAT and cutting spending was always going to dampen the recovery. Unemployment is going up and the economy is flatlining. I was in the Treasury for many years and my message, my advice to George Osborne is don't think up excuses about the weather. Don't dig yourself into a hole. He's facing a budget in a few months' time when the question is, is he going to downgrade his growth forecast? The growth outcome for last year is now going to be substantially hit. I think the most likely outcome is months of stagnant growth unless George Osborne listens and digs himself out of this hole very, very clearly. Ed Ball's there. Now, from our business desk, Niels Prattley and Philip Inman are with me, and alongside them, our columnist, Madeline Bunting. Phil, first question to you. Flash estimate, the worst weather since tiny Tim Cratchit hobbled on the earth. How seriously are we meant to take these figures? Uh, I think we're supposed to take these figures pretty seriously. uh, If the underlying figure according to the uh, ONS, was that it was flat. That is even worse than everyone was expecting. So I think, and you look at the other sorts of figures around, one I pointed out yesterday was how the government's public finances, which came out at the same time, showed that public investment 
was down six billion. And I think you can see that one of the easy things that the government has done is just simply cut all the investment uh, side of spending and not current spending. And you're seeing that in the construction industry, which has fallen off a cliff. You're seeing that in all kinds of infrastructure projects where every all the ancillary groups, the architects, the you know whoever else are involved, have all got no business. You know, and and it just leads to a huge collapse in confidence. Niels. 0.7% up the quarter before, down 0.5% in the final quarter of 2010. It, it's sometimes difficult to get a grip from just those sort of half percentage points, just how big a shot that report was. Give us a sense of how far away it was from what most analysts were expecting. Well, most analysts, I think, were expecting, even after the snow, were expecting plus 0.5 and not minus 0.5. Football managers sort of sometimes say that they're they're only ever three games away from a crisis, meaning that you know a string of bad results can sort of undermine even the best laid plans. I think your chances of the exchequer are only ever sort of two GDP numbers away from a crisis, and I think you know here was one. This was a very bad number. Yes, we can argue all day about uh, how much of it was snow, how much of it was other stuff, and that a lot of the debate on the day was about that. The basic point is, in three months' time, we're going to get an answer. We're going to get another GDP number, and if that is is well, I doubt it'll be as weak as 0.5, but it is also, if it is also weak, then I think we have got a proper crisis and the, and the, the calls for a plan B or, a, uh, or for a reappraisal, at least, of the, of the pace at which the cuts take place, I think that, that debate will grow. And into that mix, we've also got this other attack coming from, from Richard Lambert at the CBI, who's, who's coming from, from the same starting point as Osborne, i.e. that you need an aggressive attack on the deficit but he's making the point that um, plan A needs to be rather more cutely framed and it needs to encompass a a plan for growth. Madeline the budget's only two months away uh, and the big political question out of all of this is does George Osborne press ahead with his spending cuts? He's going to have to finesse very carefully any kind of possible suggestion of a U-turn. I mean, what I I kind of find quite interesting about economics is how important metaphor is. Because most people sort of sit there puzzling about the figures and what does it mean? And I don't understand 0.5 growth this. What really cuts through all that is a clever metaphor. And I think Ed Balls has got off to a cracking start, you know, slamming on the brakes too hard. Well, everybody knows when you're on a nicey road, you don't do that. And Osborne is really not great at the metaphors. You know, he's talking about uh, if it if it's raining, you don't stop going to the gym. And you just think, mm, doesn't quite work. So although at one level, huge economic kind of knowledge and competence is required to be a chancellor or a shadow chancellor, there's another side of it, which is just about get your metaphors right and you win the argument. Philip, I'll give you a choice of one of two questions. Either when it's raining, do you stop going to the gym or... How well do you think Ed Balls has done in this first couple of days since taking over? I haven't been a great fan of Ed Balls. I was a critic of his in government. You know, obviously we were there saying that he was party to letting uh, the banks get what they wanted, deregulation of the city, etc, etc. Some sort of things the Tories are throwing at him now. But I thought it was a stellar performance on Newsnight. I thought he's learnt an awful lot of lessons in terms of presentation and I think one of the things that you can see that is because he understands the subject he can focus on his presentation Um, he doesn't have to keep thinking what am I going to say next which you knew that Alan Johnson did have to keep thinking what am I going to say next and uh, and I think he's a more relaxed performer I think he's really come out fighting and I think he is going to give 
the government a run for their money. Um, Madeline, it's, it's all very well talking about presentation of arguments, but essentially Ed Balls seems to have signed up to the same line as Alistair Darling and Ed Miliband and Alan Johnson, that they would make most of these cuts just slightly slower and slightly more generously. Well, there's a kind of question of emphasis here. How exactly does he develop an argument around growth and about what you need to do to invest in the economy? And, you know, given, given how fortuitous timing Richard Lambert comes out just as Ed Balls arrives at the brief with an argument about how the government is not really investing in growth and Vince Cable's sort of response to that was just lamentable I think Balls is getting some really quite sort of big arguments lined up and they're falling into place and they make sense and after all this is the biggest political challenge that Labour's got you know the gap in the opinion polls on economic competence are just dreadful and you know if Labour's going to start being an effective opposition it really had to get its story on the economy much, much more powerful. Does that involve just taking pot shots at Osborne every time a bad number comes along, or does it involve shaping a kind of coherent alternative? Well, clearly, clearly the latter. But it doesn't, that I don't think kind of appears overnight. I mean, I think Ed Miliband and Ed Balls, you know, they've clearly got differences. We, you know, we can see them, we can track them over the last few years about how you handle the deficit. And also there's been a kind of, it seems to me, a big gap in political debate about what exactly does a growth strategy look like. And that that gap, you know, industrial policy, these are really old-fashioned ideas that no one's really been paying a lot of attention to for a long time, actually, because they thought, you know, we thought we could be a banker to the world. We didn't think we needed an industrial policy. So that's the area where it seems to me that it's 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 fine to say that it's not clear at the moment and that there's more work to be done. You know, the balls has been in the job, what, a few days. So, you know, that's what we want to see and that's what he's got to start delivering. Philip, how well qualified do you think Ed Balls is to deliver kind of a long-term alternative for Labour? Well, I think one of his problems is, is if he falls back on old big statist solutions to uh, to the problem. So he starts to talk about multi-billion pound government investments in this, that and the other, which I think at the moment people don't believe in. They think that's not the solution. But I think, you know, if you look back to some of the new Labour reports, uh, which were largely ignored, things like Alan Milburn, he came out with his report for a million workers in the services sector. Now, obviously, services is something that we're going to be building on. We can't just compete with the Germans on manufacturing. And it's all about legal services. It's all about all kinds of um, ancillary services, which if you have a highly educated workforce, you can be doing on behalf of the Chinese or the uh, even the Indians. And anybody out there who wants to get on needs all that kind of stuff built around making things. And we are very good at it and we can build on it. So you can start to talk about real jobs for real people that are clean and well paid and people want their children to go and work in and actually can start to believe in a solution for the country you can start to talk about a future what Lambert was talking about was that there was no picture for people you know we just have this completely miserable uh, view of the future which is you know we're all just going to slog on lower and lower wages you know and you have to start to paint a happier picture and I think that is something Ed Balls is well placed to do. Neil's last question to you what's been running through what Madeline and Phil has been saying is that there might be a kind of business base that Labour could uh, win over to its side if you came up with an industrial policy and you tried to get manufacturers on the side and you started sort of t- talking about what, what effect spending cuts might have on, on the economy, which after all, businesses need to be doing pretty well. We went into election with most of business seeming to be swinging away from Labour and towards the Conservatives. What chance do you think of that pendulum swing back? Well, it's just, I mean, I was I was at a city dinner last night. And the guy sitting next to me was, was advancing an argument that 
look, all this stuff about the rebalancing of the economy and the re- renaissance of British manufacturing is, is jolly nice, but does any re- anybody really believe it's going to happen? And he was suggesting that this kind of view may have uh, may actually be what the, what, the, what the Tory part of the coalition at least uh, believes. And that, uh, you know, in his view, the guy sitting next to me, that uh, this was um, actually sort of quite an honest appraisal of, uh, of the state of the British economy, i.e. that the city is the only the only part with a big enough engine to draw us out of the swamp. Now, I think, you know, if that if that perception takes hold, that that is the sort of the Osborne secret agenda or not so secret agenda, then I would have thought there is mileage for for balls and labour to position themselves against that and to position themselves on the side of the manufacturing. Clearly, they have to sort of then set out a, uh, a case for how, how they would set about this. And as Philip says, you know, Bulls' close association with uh, uh, the new labour cosiness with the city is, you know, might detract from the credibility. But, you know, you can see that there is, there is an opportunity there to, to position themselves against what, what is perceived to be the Tory position. OK, let's end by going round the table. Briefly, Philip. Budget in less than two months, what should the Chancellor do? I think he has to, um, as Madeleine said, he, he's, it's going to be a difficult job for him because he doesn't want a U-turn and he doesn't want to announce a plan B uh, out of nowhere. But I think he is going to um, finesse it. I think he will stretch, the when you look into the figures, how these cuts are going to play out. Niels? Uh, what he should do is slow down and reappraise, but I don't think he will because I think his, um, it would just lack um, credibility. Madeline Bunting. He's got to explain how he's going to avoid a lost generation. Youth unemployment is crucial. Now, if we can make him out over the sounds of clinking champagne glasses and private jets landing, we should be able to hear from our economics editor, Larry Elliott, holed up on the slopes of Davos. Larry, Davos has been a pretty uncomfortable place to be ever since the banking crisis came along in 2008. What's it like this year? Uh, A bit cheerier. Uh, Last year and the year before, it was really very gloomy. And it was kind of interesting this morning that in the big economic session that kicked it off, Nouriel Roubini, who is, you know, Dr. Doom, has been the one who predicted the crisis and has been the most bearish economist in the world just about ever since, was saying that he thought the glass was half full and half empty. So if you've got Roubini saying that things are are looking up, then you can pretty much guess that the rest of the delegates here are you know, feeling a bit more chipper than they were 12 months ago. Um, I think fears of a double-dip recession globally have been pretty much put to rest by the strength of the global economy in 2010, particularly in the emerging world. Um, and you know, apart from parts of the Eurozone and the UK, there really isn't much evidence of a double-dip recession in the global economy. So generally, businesses are quite upbeat. You know, their order books are a bit stronger than they were a year ago, and the are up. So, you know, Davos Man is uh, is is relatively uh, relatively cheery, certainly compared to 2008, 9, and 10. Where's the optimism coming from? The Chinese and Indian delegations. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a sort of geographical split, so that the people you've talked to from the emerging markets are certainly a lot more confident than the people certainly from Europe unless you're you know, excluding Germany which has had a very good year so there's a, there's a definite sort of old world versus new world split here um, which reasonably well reflects the um, you know the, the breakdown in global GDP over the last over the last 12 or 18 months I mean um, Martin Sorrell was here today talking about the sort of love-shaped um, global economy, LUV, so that Europe is having a sort of L-shaped uh, recovery where it goes down and takes an awful long time to, to come back off the bottom. The US has got a U-shape where it went down and then sort of bumped on the bottom of it and is now recovering. And the, the big emerging markets, 
they're having a V-shaped recovery. So, you know, they went down quickly and came back quickly. So and there's definitely that, that, that sense that, you know, the action is in the emerging markets rather than in the um, developed world. There's just been a big session hosted by CNBC on, you know, is what's wrong with the West? Is, the, you know, the West no longer working? You know, is, are all our jobs going to the East? I mean, that sort of pretty much sums up, pretty much sums up the theme of the, theme of the, one of the themes of the week, which is, you know, is, is, the, is the West being left for dead by the East? And tell me a bit about Davos, man. We, we've come into 2011 worrying more about inequality and the split between the rich who seem to be coming out of this slump better than the, the rest of us. How far do those worries get all the way up to the summit at Davos? Well, up to, up to a point. I mean, uh, you know, it, Davos has changed over the last 15, 20 years. When I first came to Davos in the mid 1990s, they didn't allow trade unionists in the building. So if, if trade unions wanted to come, they used to hold their own little private press conferences in a hotel outside the Ring of Steel. And gradually there has been a, a, you know, a much stronger outreach to organised labour, civil society, NGOs more generally. So the meetings are no longer quite so top-heavy with corporate CEOs. Um, having said that, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, the people who come here and pay an awful lot of money to come here dominate, and sort of the, the, the corporate agenda is is very much in, in evidence here. You know, I think that you know, having the, the actual sort of shock of the uh, of the crisis, together with some of its after effects, you know, large amounts of residual unemployment. You know, the ILO was saying this week, 200 million people plus out of work across the global economy, together with some of the evidence of what that's doing in countries like Tunisia and perhaps in Egypt is starting to percolate through. So it would be wrong, I think, to, to say that in Davos man doesn't get what's going on in the rest of the world. They see high unemployment and the social and economic problems and political problems that can cause as a potential threat to the, to the market system. So it's not, um, you know, they're, they're, obviously they're doing fine. I mean, there's an awful lot of well-heeled people here in Davos, but they're not oblivious to the fact that there are large numbers of people both in their own domestic economies and in the global economy at large, who are not doing very well, and that there's an awful lot of uh, hand wringing about the you know, need to create jobs and the need to make sure that you know the fruits of growth are shared more widely. What there isn't really is any sense of a plan to to actually affect the sort of changes that that would require. Final question, and it's on behalf of the great unwashed who never make it up the magic mountain. What's the catering like? I haven't seen that much of it yet. There's yeah, just about right. to be an open. <laughs> there's about to be an opening lunch. Uh, I had a croissant here this morning and a cup of coffee, uh, and there's about to be um, an opening buffet, which um, I'm sure will be extremely agreeable. I mean, what, what normally happens in Davos is that people go off at lunchtime and in the, in the evening to hotels to to go to sessions on various things about science or arts or, or the economy and then they they pay you know 100 swiss francs for a, you know uh, an average type swiss meal but i mean it's um, the big social event of davos comes on the saturday night when there's this thing called a soiree when people get dressed up and it's normally sponsored by uh, one of the member countries normally one of the emerging markets you put on something like a south african night or a Jamaican night and then they're normally normally uh, those are normally extremely good fun lots of uh, lots of booze and lots of dancing and people let, let, I mean, as much as a Davos man can let Davos man lets his hair down and boogies on it's kind of frightening thought in many ways I know but uh, that's what that, that happens at the end of the week so you know by the time Saturday comes around it's it's uh, it's, it's, uh, it's party time this is the business with Aditya Chakraborty 
well, we turned down our invitation to Davos to be with you instead. So we caught up with Raghuram Rajan, the former chief economist of the IMF and the current economic advisor to India's Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. I asked him to give us his view of where he thinks the world economy is. We are in recovery phase. Different parts are recovering at a different pace. I think uh, if you look at the emerging markets, well, they never really slowed down much. And they're probably in danger of overheating at this point, some of them. Industrial countries, the United States is growing again, still on the back of substantial stimulus, fiscal and monetary. But the private sector is starting to pick up. Jobs are starting to come back. Uh, Not great news so far, but the expectation is firms will start hiring in a bigger way over the next year. So all in all, I think last year was uh, uh, 2010 was surprisingly strong uh, for the global economy. This year will be a little weaker, but still nothing to sneeze about. We are in the process uh, with some risks of, uh, of a recovery. Take through those risks. What do you think is going to happen to the eurozone? I, I think it'll stick together. So I, I, I think that's the easy answer. You can never say that all of it will stick together, but certainly most of it will stick together. I think the big issue is how much they're going to bail out the countries at the periphery. I mean, either the countries at the periphery, needs some of them need to restructure. The question is what form that restructuring will take. Will it losses imposed on bondholders? Or will it be a rescheduling with some interest rate subsidies from the rest of Europe? There is a possibility that uh, Europe, after making many noises, eventually decides that the problem is small enough that it might as well swallow it. And so you spread the losses across Germany, France, etc. That's a possibility. Another possibility is Germany eventually backs up and says, look, you know, I, we're not going to take this. We need some pain to be inflicted on some of the, the bondholders, if nothing else, to uh, you know, send a signal for the future. And so you may get a little, you know, a little of that. How it evolves, it's not clear. But I, I think, by and large, there's so much value to remaining in the euro that most of the euro will stay together. Let's talk a bit about economic policymaking and your book, Fault Lines, because In that book, you lay out kind of three really big bad habits that governments, consumers, workers, companies all fell into that kind of led to the crisis that we've been living through for the past three years. Now, if I may be so uh, impertinent for an ADD suffering journalist, could you briefly summarise what those three really big fault lines are? Two of them, uh, I would say, are in the U.S. One is outside, and then there's an over-encompassing problem with the financial sector. The the ones in the U.S., you can see at work even now. One, of course, is income inequality stemming from the fact that significant parts of the population don't have the skills or the education to compete in the integrated markets the U.S. is producing. And, And as a result, you know, People are getting angry because their incomes aren't keeping pace. They're falling behind. And to some extent, I see the whole credit boom, especially the housing credit boom, as a kind of palliative. Uh, Here's money. Go out and buy a house. Feel good about it. House prices increase. You can borrow against it. You can consume. You can feel reasonably well off even though your incomes aren't keeping pace. If you look at income inequality in the U.S. over this period, increasing quite substantially. If you look at consumption inequality, it's not. What's making the difference? Debt. People are borrowing their way to keep up lifestyles and being lulled by house price rises into thinking that they're borrowing against their wealth rather than mortgaging their future. 
So I stuff your mouth with cheap loans and you buy yourself a house and everyone feels slightly, you know, slightly better about themselves. Exactly. And you, you know, you don't have to make hard choices like taxation and redistribution because, you know, the financial sector is playing along. They're making money off this stuff. Everybody's participating in this process until, of course, house prices stop rising uh, and then they start tanking and then you've got to pay the bills where we are now. Second problem, I think, is in addition to this being the consumer first and last resort, I think the U.S. has a safety niche which is which is quite thin compared to other industrial countries. For example, till recently, till the healthcare bill was passed, until it comes into action, there's no universal healthcare. Problem with that is, if you lose your job and you have limited savings, you're basically toast. And and of course, the level of anxiety in the U.S. now with nine and a half percent unemployment is enormous. Because people fear, you know, losing their jobs, what's going to happen to them. Tremendous pressure on politicians to do something, to do anything. And you can see, you know, one example of this is what the Fed did recently, I mean, with quantitative easing. When you talk to people in the Fed, they will say, we, some of them will admit that, you know, the upside from the strategy is relatively minor if there is one. But at least we're doing everything we can and we convey the image of doing everything we can we would find it very difficult to go before Congress and say, look, there are some tools we could possibly use. May, they may work, they may not, but we're not using them. Uh, we would find it difficult to say that when we have 9.5% unemployment. Are you seriously saying that the Fed is pumping hundreds of billions into the US economy, into financial markets, basically to keep face? I think that ultimately that's right. That when they keep saying dual mandate... Uh, one of which is maximum employment, the other of which is price stability. They're saying when prices are stable, which they are, we have to exert our utmost on the other dimension, even if, as Bernanke has said, look, the words don't gel. Bernanke has said the labor markets are not going to come back fast. It's going to be very hard for us to do anything about it. It's going to take four or five years for the jobs to all come back. And he's right. But if if that is right, what are you doing on monetary policy so aggressively? Uh, it's going to have limited impact. I mean, are firms not hiring because interest rates are too high? I mean, come on, they're at zero. Uh, you can borrow three-year money at half percent interest rate if you're a good U.S. corporation. If you're a big U.S. corporation. If you're a big U.S. corporation. If you're a small U.S. corporation, you can't buy, borrow it <laughs> love for love or, yeah. or, or anything. Uh, but, but that's not because of interest rates. That's because the banks have limited capital, especially the banks you deal with. That's a different problem. So the point is, we're not addressing the true problems. We're trying to stimulate our way back to growth. And this is where I think the U.S. has to awaken to the fact that there are structural problems in the U.S. It's not just cyclical. And stimulus, you know, repeatedly eventually creates its own problem. Let me give you one example of that. One of the big problems in the U.S. in terms of unemployment is the number of construction workers who are laid off. Uh, find it hard to get back to work. Well, during the boom in La in Las Vegas, because the construction industry was so vibrant, you see the high school graduation rate actually falling. Why? Because kids in high school are leaving in order to go get jobs in the construction industry, which is so lucrative. Now, it's very hard for them to go back. And unemployment rates for those without a high school education are now 15%, three times the level for those who have, who have graduate degrees. This is the problem with, with stimulus, which stimulates 
taking you into activities you shouldn't be going into. Last fault line you talked about, uh, you asked about, uh, the fact that too many countries are dependent on exports to the U.S. and look to the U.S. as being the consumer of first and last resort. One example is Japan. I mean, Japan hasn't been able to summon up demand of its own. It did very well last year on the backs of exports to the rest of Asia, on the back of exports to the U.S. Japan will come back, but it is a shame that now the third largest economy in the world is still so dependent on foreign demand and is not able to generate domestic demand to increase growth. You could say the same thing of Germany, but I think Germany is changing. German domestic demand is starting to come back after a tremendous period of of increasing competitiveness. I think these three are big fault lines which create pro- which you know, uh, you could trace the problems and the crisis to some of these. Now, you say fault lines, I say bad habits. But to what extent do you think coming out of this crisis that governments and and the rest of us are actually changing our economic bad habits? Uh, Very little, because the power of interest is so strong. The tendency is to do what you did before. I mean, in the United States, the attempt is to get the households to start spending again. People see the savings rate go to 5% and are very worried. You know, it could go to 7 or 8%. How terrible. When in fact, you know, in the larger scheme of things, more savings in the U.S. is not a bad thing. It would provide more capital uh, to make the kinds of investments. Yes, it implies a small, a certain period of slow growth. But with a two-year electoral cycle, the U.S. cannot sustain periods of slow growth. It's, it's just, and, and with the thin safety net. So there's tremendous pressure to get back very quickly. And of course, if you argue that it would be more sustainable to get back in a more, in a, in a more, uh, in a slower and more deliberate way, you're accused of not, you know, feeling for the people and advocating pain for the sake of pain. It's not pain for the sake of pain, it's sustainability. That is key. And I, I think you see across the world, the ten- temptation to go ba- back to status quo ante. You see it in the emerging markets that want to continue maintaining their exports and are therefore holding monetary policy very accommodative and are now seeing rampant inflation because you know they're trying to fix one problem but in the process creating another one. So I, I worry a little bit. Broadly speaking, though, I think the effects of this crisis will be to force a rethink. I mean, the point we started out with initially, with the high debt loads in industrial countries, we will rethink the role of the government, how much it can it can do, and what its relationship with the private sector should be. And I think some of that will be good. I'm not a total cynic thinking all this reform activity will be of no avail. I think it will be helpful. But If you're making the case in your book that these three fault lines are what led us directly to this huge once-in-a-lifetime economic crisis and we're not sorting out these three really big problems, then what's the implication of that argument? We're not sorting it out right now, but I think that we will be forced to sort it out. So, um, Or else what? Or else you will have sort of punctuation marks which will... I mean, what do I mean? Uh, uh, look at the U.S. It has to face up to the to the excess spending, certainly by governments, in the near future. I mean, my state of Illinois, where uh, where I live, uh, has just enacted a seventy five percent increase in taxes. Now, it's not decided to cut any spending, 
but I think very soon we will have the reaction from people who said this is intolerable, we're paying extremely high tax. That kind of debate will take time to emerge, but I think it will emerge. Uh, what is the appropriate role of the government? Are we getting value from money? Are we doing the things that we need to do? And I think in democracies that debate will take generally takes time to emerge, but it eventually is, is strong and, uh, and important and does change things. Slower than you will, but eventually it does change things. Ravi Rajan there, and his latest book, Fault Lines, is out now. Well, that's all for this week. We have more special guests for you next week. My thanks to Niels Prattley, Philip Hinman, Madeline Bunting, Larry Elliott and Raghuram Rajan. I'm Edith Chakraborty. The producer is Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.